Welcome to Said on Sunday, a podcast by Kelliville Anglican where we talk about what was said on Sunday or even what we didn't have time to say on Sunday. We are passionate about being deep in the Word of God and doing life together in community. So thanks for letting us into your week as we learn more about Jesus together. Here's today's episode. Well, here we are again for another instalment of Set on Sunday. My name's Beck, and I'm the host of the podcast. And around the podcasty table with me today is Richard. Hi, Richard. Hello, Beck, and hello, everybody. And Nathan. Hello, good. you're back. Yes, good to be back. Good to be back to wrap up one Samuel. It's been my baby, so yeah, it's wrapping it up. yeah, wrapping it up. Yeah. Chapter eight, mm. um, but we are coming back to it, aren't we? Yes, 2023. Yep, second term, term two. Term yep. two. So. Haven't decided whether we'll completely finish the book, because then it's twenty-three chapters in one go, or whether mm. we'll, I don't know, whether we break it up again. But that's a know. long podcast. Yeah, it is. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, we'll work it out, but we'll definitely do more of it and, and start finally getting into the kings. Uh, okay. Next year. So yeah. Sort of. Sort of. In some ways, this series was a bit of a wrap up to judges, because you sort of got mm. the last two judges in, uh, in Eli and Samuel, and so mm-hmm. next year we'll get into some kings, Saul and David, and, and see how they go. Mm. Yeah, they'll be good. Um, so let's head back to last Sunday. What did you talk about on Sunday? Yeah, um, our final passage, 1 Samuel 8, is Israel's request for a king. And I was saying on Sunday, this should have been the high point of the book because that's the resolution to Judges 21 25. In those mm-hmm. days, Israel had no king, everyone did as they saw fit. Uh, and yet, because of the motivation behind the request, it was, it was, a, it was a wicked request. Uh, it was a deeply ironic request because. Um, They'll go into a system which is going to cause them more problems than it's going to solve. Uh, and uh, and yet God in his kindness will eventually save his people through a king and, and through a son. Um, and so, yeah, so that was where we went on um, on one time. And the big challenge was, do we want to look like, do we want to follow God or do we want to look like the people around us? Because often, mm. often they are in tension and you're drawn strongly both ways. And so that was the big tension of 1 Samuel 8. Mm. Yeah, we've got some questions on that to come up mm. a bit later. Um, but, uh, first of all, we have a question about some characters that show up at the beginning of the chapter. Um, and it's, uh, about these elders of Israel. Who are the elders of Israel? Is this the first mention of them? Uh, yes. So the elders of Israel, uh, no, not, it's not the first mention of them in the Bible. They're first mentioned back in Exodus chapter three and verse 16, where God appears to Moses and God says, go assemble the elders of Israel and say to them, the Lord God, your fathers, the Lord of Abraham, Isaac, of Jacob, appeared to me and said, and goes on. So uh, that's where they first appear. So even back in Egypt, we had the elders of Israel. Now, who are they? Well, actually, we're not told. We're not told anything other than that they are the elders. But you get some hints as you read through Exodus that they are the leaders of the families. Now, exactly what that means, again, it, it's a little unclear. So whoever they are, they are people who are leaders of families who are in positions of leadership in Israel. That's, that's who they are. But they're, um, they're not a specific, not like a king or a prophet that have, you can actually tell who this, this person is, this group, that tends to be a little bit more generic, a little bit more flexible. Uh, so that's who they are. And it's mm-hmm. not the first time they're mentioned. Mm-hmm. It's appropriate that the eldest person at the table <coughs> answered the question. No, answered the question. <laughs> <laughs> As our elder. Yeah. Thank you. It's Thank nice you. not to be the oldest at the table, actually. And, yeah. Um, yeah, so it's kind of like they're the representatives in a way of Israel. Indeed. So the fact that they're unanimously coming 
yep. to Samuel saying, we want a king. It's a it's a real picture of what Israel is wanting. Yes. Yep. Yeah. Okay. Um, let's move on to kings. Mm. Um, so our next question is asking about um, why God let them have a king if he didn't want them to have a king. So the question goes, if God wanted to be Israel's king, why did he grant their request for a king? Why give them Samuel in the first place? Yeah, it's an interesting question because the most efficient and the most effective king is God himself. Mm. Uh, and so there would be an argument to go, ah, no, we're going to scrap human leaders and I'll just do it all myself, thanks. Um, I think, one, God is very gracious and just like how Jesus invites us, like God invites us into his mission. And that, so God invites humans to participate in a work that he's doing. And so he appoints human leaders to lead, even though he could just lead by himself and just mm. like God could go out and convert lots of people himself, lets us participate in his mission. God lets humans participate in his work. And so that includes uh, leadership roles that he gives to humans. Um, I said at 8.30 that the sermon could have been longer if we wanted to dive into sort of prayer and interesting that when God grants your prayer request, it's not always a sign of blessing because Mm. God was active God and Samuel uh, verses through verses 10 to 18, which we didn't look into too much was actively trying to warn them that the King is going to be a disaster. Like, and you know, and they repeat a refrain, he will take five times. The King will take, the King will take, the King will take over and over and over again. And they don't listen. And so actually him, God giving them a King is actually a little bit of judgment, a little bit of punishment that he tried to warn them against. Um, and then you got the biblical theological point of God has promised a King the whole way through scripture from Genesis 3 uh, with the son who's going to crush the serpent's head, uh, Genesis uh, 17, that kings will come from Abraham's line, Genesis 49, where Judah will have a king that will reign forever. Um, so God has always promised a king. So there's a few factors at play, but yeah, God could just lead the nation by himself, but he allows humans to participate in his work, which is which is very gracious of him. Mm. Anything to add, Richard? Oh, no, I was actually looking at uh, the next question actually to add into that. Okay, uh, yeah. As, as well, to why, why you actually need a king. Yep, that's the question. Why do um, we need a king? Yeah, which uh, was was something that was was on my mind as uh, Nathan was, was talking because as, as you get to, to the end of, of Judges, uh, as Nathan was pointing out, um, everyone did as they saw fit. Mm-hmm. And so we, we, need, we need someone to follow us, uh, someone um, for us to follow who is going to lead us the way that God wants us to go because because of sin, of course. We, um, we now want to go our own way. We want to be our own king. And so we, we need someone to rule over us to, bring, to, to direct us in the way God wants us to go because if we're left by ourselves, we're just going to sin. Mm-hmm. And we're going to be our own king, our own queen. We're going to put the crown on our own head, push God out push God away. So that, that's why we need a king. Yeah, I think the most, one of the most common analogies for humans given in scripture is that we're like sheep um, and sheep wander off in the wrong direction. And so, yeah, yep. we're quick to, uh, we're quick to wander off and we'll wander off as a group. And so, yep. and so it's, it's, in, it's interesting that Jesus is a king, but he's also a shepherd. shepherd. And mm. so, yeah, we're like sheep. We're going to go, we're going to go the wrong direction left for our own devices. And so God very graciously um, provides leaders for us. And obviously he's given us the ultimate leader in Jesus. And, but you see it, like we are like sheep. Like when Israel have bad leaders, they go yep. terribly. And when mm. they have good leaders, they thrive. Like mm. we, um, yeah, we're sheep. <laughs> we'll mm. wander off. And so we need someone <laughs> to guide us. Otherwise, if we're left for our own devices, it's a disaster. Yeah. If you've got someone guiding you in the wrong direction, it's a disaster. So the only real 
way that people thrive is having a leader guiding them in the right direction. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. And not to get too philosophical, but I think it's the way we were were created. Mm. So as Christians, we believe that God made the universe and so he's created it with a certain order and he is the rightful king as the creator and he sort of made us to be, to flourish when we submit to his kingship. So in a sense, that's why we need a king because we were made to need a king. We were made to need God. Um, that's sort of part of, of who we were created to be. Um, all right. So that's kings. Mm. Moving on to sons. <coughs> yeah. Sons got a bad rap on Sunday. <laughs> and, and by the way, the, uh, the the gentlemen at the table just have daughters here. Mm, yeah. I'm just saying we we have daughters, no sons. Yeah, that's true. I have a son, yeah. and he is awesome. So. <laughs> I <laughs> did try Indeed to. He is. Yeah, he is. I did try to caveat it with uh, in one and two Samuel, the sons are the problem. Yes, yep. in the yes. rest of Scripture, sons can be quite <laughs> quite positive. And actually, one of the. Jonathan is actually a very godly son. It's mm. just the fact that he has a corrupt dad. So he ends up yep. being a problem for his dad. But if Saul yep. was a good bloke, then Jonathan would have been a real great ally yep. for him. So, mm, yeah, there true. are some nice sons even in, in 1 and 2 Samuel, even though they are a problem for their for their parents. Yeah. Mm. All right. Well, let's have a talk about the sons in Samuel. Um, so is Samuel being sinful in a similar way to Eli by not raising godly sons and by also just appointing them um, as his successors? Shouldn't he have gone to God in prayer about who should judge or lead Israel next? And we have another question that's similar. So we'll take them together. If Samuel's sons are corrupt, would this imply that the would this imply that um, though Samuel was a godly leader, he wasn't a godly father? Or is there more something more to it? So let's start with the question. Was Samuel a bad father like Eli? Can we start with that? Yeah, let's start with that. Yeah. Um Samuel is trickier than Eli because Eli is specifically called out. Yeah. And so he's, he is held responsible for his son's failings. And the difference between Samuel and Eli, uh, and a key difference, is that Eli participates in his son's corruption. Mm. Whereas uh, I think it's verse 3 or verse 4 where the elders complain to Samuel that the sons don't follow Samuel's ways. And so actually the sons would have been good if they followed their father's footsteps. So mm. Samuel, at the very least, is setting a godly example. Um, uh, in terms of appointing them as leaders, maybe he acted presumptively by just assuming that his family line was the solution. And so, again, he doesn't specifically get called out for that, but mm. it doesn't work out. And, yeah, we don't. it doesn't seem like God had given him permission to do that. But I think he was just trying to be pragmatic. He'd gotten old. He'd gotten tired. He had mm. modelled leadership to his sons their whole lives and just assumed that they'd probably do a good job. But yeah. unfortunately, that didn't happen. So did Samuel act presumptively? Probably yes. But I would be hesitant to lump Samuel in the same category as Eli because Samuel's a very godly man. He doesn't join in his son's corruption. Maybe he could have curbed it. I don't know. Maybe he should have stepped them down. But yeah. Yeah. I think he acted presumptively, but he's certainly not as corrupt as Eli being where I'd go. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, yeah, likewise. And I think uh, with uh, with Samuel, he is doing what everybody of the day just assumed that your sons will follow in your footsteps. Mm. And that's why you have kingships, well, one of the reasons why you have kingships passing from father to son. And that's why you have, if you are a, a carpenter, your son will be a carpenter. If you're a farmer, your son will be a farmer. So the, the, the natural assumption would have been in his mind anyway that if I'm a judge, therefore my sons will 
be judges. So without, if he hasn't thought it through, then that would be the, the natural way that he would, he would mm -hmm. be thinking. So it might, might be why he's not mm -hmm. called out on it yep. because he's just thinking as the culture would think and the culture has thought for, mm. well, for millennia. Yeah. Yeah. Did the priestly line have something to do with it as well? Yeah, yeah, I was actually thinking that as well, that the uh, because of the priesthood was down from father to son as well, then, yeah, that would be an, another natural assumption that mm. this is what happens, therefore. Yeah, yeah, it's interesting. Yeah, priestly line would have something to do with it, but Samuel had such a unique role because mm. he, was, he was a priest, but he was a prophet, a prophet and a judge and yeah, a priest. he was a lot and of so things. so whether he ascribed all that authority to his sons or whether he just gave them priestly duties, again, we're not told. Yeah. Yep. Um, and just on the parenting question, yeah, I think – it's a dangerous uh, path to go down that how your kids turn out is a reflection of your yeah. parenting. Um, yeah. I know some very godly parents, uh, previous church, there's a couple of parents who had, I think they had two or three kids, all of them non-Christians, but for their entire lives, they'd prayed for their kids three times a day, twice mm. together in the parents, twice together in the morning uh, as a husband and wife, and then separately at their lunch breaks at work, wow. like praying for their kids three times a day, read the Bible to them every single day. So faithful. Put them in all the best cult, in all the cultures they could think of, and all three of them, non-Christians, like just tragic. Um, but if you ask me, are they good parents? Are they fantastic parents? Yeah. Um, mm. And then there are other parents who, you know, aren't even Christian or they're sort of, they're just very half-hearted with it, you know, and, um, and their kids turn out fantastic. So... Um, there's every chance that Samuel was a very godly father who just unfortunately had corrupt sons. Um, yeah. and at the very least, yeah, even when his sons are, are rejected, people still compliment Samuel's character. So at the very mm. least he modeled, maybe he should have spent more time with them or I don't know, who knows, but at the very least he modeled godliness to them and yeah. they saw it and rejected it. And so, yeah, it's, you can't judge a parent just on how their kids turn out, um, Oh, oh, I mean, parents are sinful, so they're going to make mistakes and that's mm. going to affect their kids. But yeah, it's God's work to save. And there are parents who've done everything, everything right, quote unquote, and end up with non-Christians and parents who've made a lot of mistakes and, and haven't even really encouraged yeah. their kids in their faith at all who end up with some of the godliest young men and women yeah, you'll ever see. Indeed. So it's God's work. And so, yes, I am very hesitant to throw Samuel under the bus. Yeah. Um, when, yeah, from lived experience. Your mm. godliness doesn't always translate down to your kids. That is true. That's true. Yeah, I did a little bit of digging in a commentary to try and figure out some more mm. um, detail. And there really isn't very much detail um, exactly how Samuel raised his sons. But one little tidbit that I found was um, in the genealogy in 1 Chronicles 6.33, we actually see one of Samuel's grandsons serving in the temple which suggests that it wasn't a complete disaster. Like it wasn't the disaster that Eli's sons were who were thoroughly bad and thoroughly judged and mm. and, and died actually because mm. of their transgressions. So, yeah, so it's unclear but it's a different bag, um, Samuel and, and Eli. Yeah. yeah. So, uh, yeah, I also just want to encourage parents who have done their best and their kids have rejected the faith for now. One, it's not. It's not done. Like mm, whilst yeah. they're whilst they're still alive, there's still hope. Um, mm. So keep praying, keep being faithful, and it's it's not it's really not necessarily a reflection of of your parenting skills if it didn't turn out the way you exactly wanted it to. So keep praying, keep being faithful. Um, if a godly man like Samuel can raise corrupt sons, then like yeah, you're in you're in good company if you're finding parenting hard and yeah. the children mm. are following the ways you wanted them to. So um, yeah, keep pushing on, and please don't see it as a reflection of what you did. Yeah. Yeah. That's really helpful. Um, so we've kind of answered the next question already that was on our list about how we can, 
um, do things differently than Eli and Samuel in, in raising our sons to know and follow God. Richard, did you have anything to add to that, what Nathan has said? No, not really. I think Nathan's covered um, uh, covered everything there. I don't know what we should do differently to raising our sons or, or daughters to know and follow God, um, but all I would say is uh, that you model, I just encourage parents, it's one thing to say to your children what you should do. It's another thing to model it. Mm. Uh, children do not do what you say, but they do do what you do. Mm. And so my encouragement to parents is uh, it is it is not what you, you tell them, it's what you show them. Uh, and as Nathan has made mention, there's no guarantee that they're going to be godly or ungodly. But if you set a child off in the way that they will go uh, when they're young, then as the proverb says, uh, when they're older, they will not depart from it. That's a, that's a generalisation, of course. Um, but if you model it, that that's what you should be doing, modelling, mm. not, not, not saying. That's mm. the only other thing I'd add to that. Yeah, I think there's a lot of power in modelling. I think um, in the Timothy and Titus, um, Paul's talking a lot about um, live a godly life so that people can imitate you. Um, that's kind of seen as um as a really helpful tool in discipleship so yeah i think that's good all right so the next question um is about youth as well um so the question is the youth are shock absorbers for new trends cultures and worldviews as a youth pastor um can you share with us how we can help or pray for them to persevere in the lord Mm. yeah um it's a really important question um because yeah they're sort of Use the old cliche, they are the future. <laughs> the future yeah. of the church. The children are our future. Yeah, they're the future of the church, of the next generation. And um, and so, and I I said on Sunday, I think at all services, they have a harder than even I did. Like mm. I graduated high school in 2010. Mm-hmm. Um, it was it was like we were prudes, so it was sort of as culture was about as negative as it got. Mm. Um, but and but often we're seen with the moral high ground. So sort of prudish, but we had the moral high ground on lots of issues. Now we're bigots, we have the mm. moral low ground, we're the ones who are getting judged. Um, culturally, yeah, we're less and less accepted. And mm. you've got the teenagers who are going through everything, you've got puberty, you got insecurities, everything's changing. Um, you're going through so much, even just the stress of high school, like – and you got this culture against you as well. And so really hard. And so, like you said, modeling faith uh, to your kids. So you persevering through your own hard times and keeping on their faith will help them when they hit their own hard times. Mm-hmm. Um, helping them stay in the word as best as possible. Um, again, yeah, the word has more substance than than TikTok, uh, TikTok and, and YouTube and, and all those social media sites. Uh, and then again, I think really helpful thing, whether it be through schools, whether it be through churches, but getting them in cultures where Christianity is encouraged and mm. actually is celebrated. And it's really, yeah, it's not just okay to be a Christian. It's, it's a really great thing and it's celebrated. And so, yeah, as a youth pastor, that's where youth groups come in where every week you're gathering with 30, 40 kids and we're just celebrating Jesus. Mm. We're celebrating being a Christian. Um, we're thinking about issues. Yeah. Like it, that's going to be really helpful because it's, it's sad, but it's also appropriate. Your influence as a parent is waning at this point. Mm. Um, and that's entirely appropriate because they need to learn to grow up and live by themselves at some point. And so you need to give them, you want to surround them with other people as your influence wanes that mm. 
can influence them in the right way. So that's, yeah, Christian friends, youth groups, school groups. Um, yeah, because it's, it's appropriate. It's sad, but it is appropriate that you're influenced way into this point. Um, mm. and, so, and this is yeah. also the point where a lot of life decisions are made Yes, at that point. And particularly you see, I think it's the largest percentage of people who become Christians. It, it's in that sort of area, the youth, young, adult. Yeah. region, isn't it, of, of your age group. That tends to be when most people make those decisions that will last their lifetime. And so it's good to have your kid going along to youth group hearing the gospel. It's good good even to have scripture taught at school so that they, they're at least getting some of it there. Yeah. But getting into those communities, yeah, that is, that is really important because if they see that there are a whole group of people who I respect, not only the leaders but also yeah. my friends who are making the same life choices, it makes it easier to make those life choices. Yeah. Because to get back to your point a little while ago, uh, we are sheep, yes. <laughs> and yeah. uh, then the younger you are, the more you tend to bleat. <laughs> so, yeah, uh, yeah your youth mm. will follow yeah. a leader very, very quickly and easily. Mm. And so, to have the right leaders there, be they their peers or the youth leaders, really important. Mm. Yeah. So we ran an event a few weeks ago called One, where we merged with Norwest and Rouse Hill and Quakers Hill. Mm -hmm. Just to sort of encourage our kids, like there are so many kids in your community that are Christians and who are at your schools that you probably mm. didn't even know were Christians. Like sort of, you're not on your own. You, yeah. there's, there's hundreds of kids around the area um, that follow Christ and, and love Jesus and are pushing on through all the same struggles that you are. And that was pretty much just getting them all in the one room was as much of the goal as the night as well yeah. as the activities and the teaching. Just going, look at how many people follow Jesus. You are supported. You're not on your own. You'll probably feel like that, but you're really not. Um, mm. Yeah, so that was actually a really encouraging night, just getting 280 kids in a room with all their leaders and just celebrating Jesus together was, was a really special night. Mm, that's really cool. Um, something else that I've been reflecting on, um, I've done a lot of youth ministry over the years and um, and I was listening to a podcast the other day about Gen Z, which is the up-and-coming generation mm. of teenagers and, and young, young adults. And um, they did a questionnaire in America with Gen Z teenagers sort of asking them different questions and the, a Christian organisation putting on this research. And um, it was something like 70% of Gen Z Christians are open to forming relationships with older Christians in their church. So sometimes as older people, we can be a little bit intimidated by teenagers, but um, it, it's I, I'm sure in Australia it's similar. We tend to be a bit similar to America. Um, they're just crying out for someone to get alongside them um, and you don't have to be cool like you mm. just be yourself and just take an interest in in their lives so youth ministries that I've been involved with before have had um, uh, adults who aren't youth leaders but they come in and bring supper so they bring the bring the chicken wings and um, and chat to the kids and just getting alongside kids just to just to kind of have that intergenerational ministry and um, the kids are open to it has been my experience. And a lot of my youth leading has been me as like a, a grown up, like not mm. a cool, like 18 year old, like, and, um, they're really open to it. So, um, see, see how you go getting alongside some teenagers and walking with them through these difficult territories. Yeah. Yeah. Well, for me, like the life changing moment was a 65 year old meeting up with me when I was 18. Amazing. 47 years older. Yeah. And it wasn't cool. But he loved Jesus. I thought, he's pretty, seems wise. Yeah, he's not cool, but he's wise. <laughs> yeah. And yeah, so I was open to, and that was completely life-changing for me. That was when I went from faith as like a, yeah, it's something I do because I've always done it to, no, this is the most important thing 
in my life. So mm. yeah, it's, it's a massive blessing when older people want to invest in you. Mm. 100%. All right. So we're going to talk a bit more about living in a secular world. Um, now, Nathan, you mentioned that we are not to try and fit in with the people around us like Israel does. Yet, in 1 Corinthians 9.22, Paul says, I have become all things to all people so that by all possible means I might save some. So, are we meant to look different to the people around us, um, to look like them so that we can bring the gospel to them? How do we reconcile the two passages? Mm. Yep. Uh, Richard says something really wise on Sunday, um, so I'm going to steal it and pretend I came up with it. So I look really wise. <laughs> I can't remember. <laughs> what it was. Yeah, yeah. No, it's um. So yeah, what the difference between again? I said the sort of the catchphrase was it's not what you say, it's why it's why you said it. Mm-hmm. Why is Paul blending in? Paul is blending in because he wants to see people come to know Jesus Christ. Mm. Okay. Why are Israel blending in? They are blending in so that they can worship other gods and be like the people around them. And mm. so, so again, it's not what you, what you say, it's why you say it. So why mm. are you blending in? Because if I'm analyzing myself, it's because I want to be popular. I want to be liked. I want to save face. I want to save reputation. It's not so that I can win them over to Jesus. When I, when I've blended mm. in, that's often been the motivation. So, um, yeah, so Paul's doing it and, and again, and then there's wisdom. Like there are things that scripture doesn't give any particular guidelines or rules for and so we can be super flexible on those things Uh, but then there are issues that the bible does have very clear guidelines and very clear uh, commands on and then we don't have permission to be flexible on Mm. that and so again it's working through yeah so paul didn't ever compromise the word of god Mm. he did as much as he could without he was as flexible as he could uh, without breaking the word of god but once he was felt like he needed to break the word of god then he stopped and he, and he wouldn't go cross that line. So yeah. So that was Richard's point. What's your motivation? Why are you blending in? For me, mm. it's always, almost always sinful. You know, mm. I'm blending in so that I can be liked and uh, cause I want to be like the people around me. Uh, and then yeah, there's flexibility to a point, but we don't break God's word at any point. So now that I've stolen your wisdom, Richard, do you have anything else to add? <laughs> <laughs> Apparently I've just said it all. Thanks, Richard. <laughs> it's, it's fine. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. That's really helpful. It's a really nice distinction Mm. and really clear way of separating the two out. Mm. Mm. Okay. So we live in a secular society in Australia. Is there any upside to an increase in secularism for Christians? Uh, That's an an interesting question uh, because the question in itself, just if you think of secularism, is there an upside to secularism? I can't think of one. But if you were saying, is there an upside for Christians? The only one that it comes to mind is that you would be a brighter light in the world. Mm. That would be about the only thing that I could could think of there. Um, secularism, uh, in and of itself, uh, has obviously some some terrible things as far as your Christian life is concerned, because it it uh, is telling you that uh, there is no God, and there and that. Uh, who you are worshipping doesn't exist and your Christianity is, is, is pointless. Any upside to that would be is that you and our standing out as being very, very different. Uh, that would be it's the only answer I've really got to that question is, yeah, you're, you are just a brighter light. You are, you are different to the world around you. Um, that would be the upside yeah. that, that I could see. I, I couldn't think of another one. Yeah, it's interesting. I think maybe an argument, a positive is that, Often the church does thrive 
whilst under pressure. Mm -hmm. um, and so often in persecution, it, it thrives and we're certainly not being persecuted as yet. Um, we're increasingly unpopular, but I don't think we've crossed that line mm. of no. being persecuted. Um, and yet what it does force, it does sort of, I was going to say purification, but sort of a refining of the church. Like the people who were kind of in it just because it was culturally popular will drop out. And yeah. the people who are left are a remnant who take God's word very, very seriously because they're willing to take scorn and public abuse and uh, in, in the cases of, you know, Paul's day, persecution for the faith. And so actually the church can often be refined and, and yeah, how, how seriously do you take your faith? How seriously do you take God's word often is not shown when Christianity is, is the popular, it's the popular thing. Yeah. Mm. But when it's not, then yeah, actually you, there is a refining that takes place in the church and, and often that leads to growth because mm. you're left with the really authentic, really passionate Christians yeah. and that, that culture is actually quite alluring to outsiders. Mm. Whereas when it's comfortable, you get a lot of nominalism and that sort of drags almost everyone down because everyone's yeah. just comfortable in doing yeah, it. Yeah, you get to the lowest common denominator often, don't you? Yeah. Yep. So that would be the other upside. And yeah. So, I think that's borne out in church history, definitely. Yeah. I remember I did, did a unit on church history last semester and a sociologist actually looked at the, the rapid growth of Christianity and that was one of the factors is mm. that the fact that they were under pressure meant that every member in their church really um, was a member of the church. Yeah. Um and so that that helped the growth, the rapid mm. growth of the church. So do not dismay, do not despair mm. um, that God can use even the secularism of Australia mm. for his good purposes. Yeah, yeah totally. Okay, last question. It's pretty blunt, so I'm just going to say it outright. Okay. Have you ever met a Christian who is a hypocrite? <laughs> that is blunt, isn't it? <laughs> Uh, yeah, my answer to that is uh, yes, every time I look in the mirror to shave uh, is, is my answer to that question. Because we're, we're all in, because we're not perfect, because we're sinful, we are all by definition hypocrites. Mm. And uh, I, I suppose the question maybe looking at something a little bit different to that, is there anyone who sort of stands out spectacularly as a hypocrite? I, I imagine is what they're asking. But as, as a generalisation Every person, even if you're a Christian or not, is a hypocrite to their own standards because we're, we're never consistent. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, we, uh, we can hold contradictory views and act contra in contradictory ways no matter who we are, Christian or not Christian. Uh, so in a sense, we're all hypocrites, each and every one of us, to our own standards and our own, um, own belief systems. And so for a, a Christian, yeah, every one of us, we need to stand up and say, yeah, okay, I'm a hypocrite. I'm a forgiven hypocrite, but I'm a hypocrite. Mm. Yeah, I think I think it's Tim Keller. He's sort of, when he's trying to convince people about the doctrine of sin, I think he was sort of saying, let's throw God's rule book out the window for a little bit. Let's just, your own rule book, when you mm. get angry at people, do you not do those same things? And, and for the standards that you hold to others, do you keep them? And sort of universally, we can't even keep our own standards, yeah. let mm. alone God's standards. Mm. Uh, and so every single, like, like Richard said, yeah, every single person is a hypocrite. <clears throat> and the difference between a Christian and non-Christian is one's a forgiven hypocrite <laughs> and one's a unforgiven hypocrite. But mm. um, yeah, no one can keep their own standards, let alone God's standards. And so we are all hypocrites. I think with the reason why people get um, frustrated with the church is that often we've tried to take the moral high ground whilst yeah. being hypocrites. So it would have mm. been more helpful if we had sort of been like, we're all struggling, we're all sinful, humble. we're all yeah. flawed. So yeah, when you take the moral high ground, so I wonder whether that's where the question's going. Like we, yeah, we have taken the moral high ground on a lot of issues and then fallen yeah. 
in a lot of other issues. So, yeah. Um, yeah, but we're all hypocrites. And so, yeah, that's just a somber reminder to be humble. And when you see other people's flaws to, to deal with them as graciously as you can, because you're going to yep. fall into similar pitfalls yourself. Mm. Yep. I think as Christians, we really want to be, strive to be people of integrity mm. because when you look at a Christian, you want to be able to see something of Jesus. Yeah. And if what people see is hypocrisy, they're not going to be drawn to Jesus. So yeah, yeah it, while, while there's a, a reality to our sinfulness, this side of, of Jesus coming back, we want to really strive to, to not mm. be hypocrites, but yeah, mm. but we are like, yeah. like you guys have pointed out. Yeah. yeah. All right. Well, that was our last question. So now we'll move on to what we're doing next week on Sunday. Uh, yes. So next week we have, uh, we have a guest in, as a matter of fact, uh, from Samaritans first, we have Rodney Trinidad, our very own, uh, Rodney, uh, is now going to night church. He was going to, uh, they were at 1030 for a little while, I believe. So now, uh, so Rodney uh, works for Samaritans first. We're going to hear a little bit about their ministry and, uh, Rodney's going to be opening up God's word for us. Mm-hmm. Uh, as of right now, I should have prepared for that. I've just realized cause I don't know exactly what passage he's <laughs> speaking on, uh, but, um, uh, that's where we're going for this week coming. Okay. Yep. Sounds good. Looking yep. forward I've to it. We've got a sermon series on the Trinity in the school holidays, yep. which um, okay. Richard's a, he's a brave man in Trinity. <laughs> so many beautiful things and so many traps for a Trinity That's series, right. But, yeah. Um, there's, yes. Look out for that. There are lots yep. of, uh, there are lots of really interesting things when we come to talk about one God, three persons, mm. uh, and it, it's the, the, the what what defines a Christian historically through history has has been uh, the the doctrine of the Trinity. If you don't hold to that, mm. then you're, you're not a Christian. And so it's very fundamental at one level, um, and it's also the the spot where a lot of uh, Christians took a long time to work out exactly what what is mm. this Trinity idea. Mm. So we sometimes take it actually for granted in a way because we have the creeds that uh, took a, a bit bit to argue through and a bit to get right. Mm. And we just say them every Sunday as if they're, um, they're, they're things that have always been. Mm. Not, not, not quite true. And actually this, this concept of, of what, there is one God, three persons, it's a, it's a bigger thing mm. than uh, sometimes we credit for. So l- look forward to that. Yeah, so it's fundamental on one level. Yeah. Uh, it'll be challenging on another. Yeah, question yeah. time will be brutal. But yeah, <laughs> anyone can weather that, Richard. <laughs> <laughs> I, I actually think we're are we taking a break over over those uh, that holiday period. I'm not sure. We will, but we will still be taking questions. Questions, okay. And so doing a mega back. podcast um, after <laughs> the holidays. When we come back, okay. it's a mega podcast on the Trinity, yeah. which okay. um, oh which will be fun. Yeah. Um, all right. Well, thanks guys for joining us this week, and we hope to see you on Sunday. Look forward to it. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode. We'd love you to join us at Kellyville Anglican any Sunday at 8.30, 10.30 or 6.15pm. If you can't visit us in person, you can also join us online. You can find out more information at www.kac.sydney. So come join us and see for yourself what is said on Sunday.